boom, right down to the ankles. I was humiliated. You know those times in your life when you're like, everything's in slow motion? And I'm trying to pull up my trackies to cover my pants. It was humiliating. I was, it was, in fact, I was so humiliated, I thought, what I want to do is kill one of these teenagers that did it. I didn't, by God's grace, but I wanted to. That's humiliation. When somebody else puts you down, when somebody else wants to expose you, wants to shame you, that's humiliation. It's not the same thing as humility. Humility is when we purposely, in in following our Lord and Savior Jesus, we purposely put ourselves down where we're meant to be. We recognize the position that we're meant to be in. That's humility. And where we are in 1 Corinthians is we're in a place where, if you remember, Paul's dealing with the first of many problems in this church. He's dealing with the issue of disunity. And and we're going to see as we continue to go through 1 Corinthians that Paul's not afraid to to flex his apostolic muscle. He's not afraid to, to, to kind of draw the line on the sand and say, this is where you need to be. He's not afraid to do that. And I have to say, in this situation, as I felt like as a youth worker all those, day, all those years ago, in this situation with Paul and the church in Corinth, I would want to do this here with this disunity. I would want to say, you know what? You guys need to stop messing about and just get together. Be on the same page for crying out loud. But he doesn't really do that. What he does instead in this final section uh, about this issue is, is he shows them what humility looks like. Because humility is what's required if we're going to have unity. And Paul said this in other places. We read, we read about this in Ephesians chapter 4. We read about this with, with Christ as the, the main example in Philippians chapter 2. Here, Paul's wanting to say, listen, to, to a church that's really got it wrong, he's wanting to say, you guys are missing the main ingredient for unity, and that is humility. And so what we're going to see today is Paul holding forth not just himself, but he and the other apostles' uh, example, specifically we think Paul and Apollos, and probably even a reference to Cephas or Peter in this as well. But he's holding forth themselves as examples of humility to show that their life is the life that God actually calls us to be. So that, so that they, Paul can say with confidence, imitate me. So let's look at that. Four ways Paul and the other apostles demonstrated a Jesus-centered humility. Starting in verse 1, it's a humility that stewards the gospel of Jesus. In verse 1, we read this. This is how one should regard us, Paul says about him and the other apostles. One should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, Paul's saying, here's how we identify ourselves. We actually identify ourselves by the gospel. This is what humility does. And this is really important. In a day and age where we're all, uh, we live in a culture and a time where people say, you determine your own identity. But what what we have in the scripture is Paul said in a, 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 a standard for us, a standard that God wants for us of finding our identity in the gospel. Our identity in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. When he talks about this, when he talks about being a servant of Christ or stewards of the mysteries of God. Remember, a mystery is not something that we don't know, but something that that couldn't be known until God revealed it. That's what a mystery is. And so what he's talking about here really, in essence, is the gospel. When he says that that he's a servant or they are servants 
of Christ. He's saying, listen, we're celebrating the good news that Jesus is our master. And that is good news. Because all of us have to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan sang way back in the 70s. All of us have to serve somebody. And the good news, the master that we serve, Jesus, is good. And this is what Paul's saying. It's good news that he's Lord. But also, listen, when he says stewards of this mystery of the mysteries of God, he's reminding them of what they've known before. And that is that all that we need to know about God is found in the person and work of Jesus. And so really, in a sense, this is the good news of Christ crucified, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 2, of Christ crucified that clarifies all truth. When we look at life, when we look at Scripture through the lens of Christ crucified, that's when things begin to make sense. Johnny talked about this in 1 Corinthians 2. This is how the apostles are identifying themselves. They're seeing themselves as stewards of this great gospel, this gospel worth celebrating, this gospel worth following. And so the gospel, verse 2, that they've committed themselves to faithful distribution. It says, however, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now Paul's both saying what he's done and what he's about to do in 1 Corinthians. Paul's being really clear here. God's given me a stewardship. You know what a stewardship is, right? It's, it's you have a responsibility for something that doesn't belong to you. Paul doesn't make up the gospel. Paul doesn't write out the gospel. He's not the one who brings the definitions. It's God himself who's in that. It's Jesus himself who's done that. Paul just explains those things. He's been given a stewardship. It's like, it's like Paul is, that, is that, 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 that main slave of a household, the household belonging to Jesus. Paul's that main slave whose responsibility is to make sure that all the goods of that household get distributed the right thing to the right person at the right time. He's a steward of the mysteries of God. And Paul's saying, this is what we've done. This is humility. This is how this is humility. Follow me. When we recognize that this is what our life's work is. Not my life's work, not John Brown, pastor. No, our life's work as believers, as Jesus followers, then we're finally walking in humility. See, whatever your vocation is, and your vocation Whatever it is, you're a businessman, you're a butcher, you're a barber, or something else that starts with a B. Whatever you are is, is, is something that God's called you to for the sake of the gospel, to both demonstrate and as opportunity has been given to proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's why he's given you that. You're doing good for others. That shows the goodness of the gospel. And when you point past yourself to the God who is good, you begin to proclaim the gospel. Paul says we are committed by this. And here, here's something that's really important to understand. Every one of us as Jesus followers has been entrusted as stewards of the gospel. But unfortunately, what we tend to do is we treat the gospel as, I don't know, maybe a, a favorite Christmas gift or that bit of clothing that you finally found after shopping for so many years. You wear it with pride occasionally, but usually you keep it in the closet as opposed to something that doesn't belong to you, that's been given to you to give away to others. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 35. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's what Jesus says. God gives us the stewardship. Now listen. 
Remember, the context of 1 Corinthians here is Paul saying how he's correcting the Corinthians for their disunity. Where, how do we build towards unity? You know how? We give away what we have. We share the gospel we have. And that's not just those outside the church. We need to gospel one another. We need to remind each other constantly of Christ and him crucified. That this is why we're forgiven. This is why we know we're loved. This is why we know there's hope because Christ was crucified and resurrected. We need to gospel each other. It's that kind of stewardship that puts us in that right, humble spot and builds unity. But also look at verse 3. It's a humility that trusts the judgment of Jesus. Verse 3, Paul says, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human courts. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not entirely, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. What's Paul saying here? Paul's being really clear. He's saying, listen, we trust the judgment of, of Jesus as greater than any and all other human judgment. That, that we recognize, okay, it, it really doesn't matter what people think about us. What matters is what Jesus thinks about us. This is really what's meant by the fear of the Lord, in case you didn't know. The fear of the Lord is not necessarily a, a trembling in fear, like a, a fear of judgment. But the fear of the Lord is a recognition that God's opinion matters more than anybody else's. And so there's this idea here that Paul's saying, listen, you guys are judging me. The Corinthians are judging Paul. They're basically weighing him up and going, nah, you're not that great. We don't think you really know what you're doing. And Paul said, you know, it's really not that big of a deal if you want to judge me. That's fine. Because I don't give account to you. I give account to God. I'm accountable to him, first and foremost. See, th- th- this is important because what Paul's recognizing is a gospel thing. Paul's recognizing, listen, that he's neither condemned nor justified by human opinion. If you come to me and you say, man, I'm feeling really guilty about my life, and I say, hey, it's fine, you're forgiven, and you go, wow, I feel so much better, thank you. I might be wrong. <laughs> Maybe you're not forgiven. If I'm just saying that because I think, well, what you did isn't that bad, go ahead, be warm, be filled, you're fine. I could be showing you something that's wrong. I, I could be pointing you in the wrong direction. At the same time, if you, if you come to me and you're saying like, yeah, I had a bit of a rough day, uh, you know, on, on Friday, and so I just kind of slept in Saturday to about noon, and I go, that's not of God. You're lazy, and you need to repent. And I condemn you. You're like, oh, I'm such a sinner, I slept in till noon. But I might be wrong. You might have needed that 12 hours of sleep, or however long you got. See, it's not our opinion that justifies Or condemns us. It's not our opinion of one another or our opinion of ourselves that justifies or condemns us. It's what God says. And humility is saying, God, you judge rightly, not me. In fact, Paul says how judgment is going to happen. Look at verse 5. Paul says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, that is, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is an echo from chapter 3. Rory talked about chapter 3, if you remember, and he was teaching us about how the fact that there's this, this kind of scary idea that, that our works would be tested by fire. And though that we ourselves will be saved, some of our works might be burned up. It's kind of a scary thought. 
But there's, there's an echo to this, and there's something also comforting in this. And that is, and that is though all our works are going to be judged, the reality is we're going to be commended for the good things that we've done, the things we've done by faith. If our faith is in Jesus' finished work for our sin, if our faith is in Jesus' resurrection for our justification before God, and by faith we're, <coughs> we're seeking to love people and love him and be good stewards of the gospel, we're going to get it wrong. Some of the stuff's going to burn up, but guess what? Some of the stuff's going to remain, and there's going to be a commendation. See, here's the, here's the, reality, the reason we should, one of the reasons we should uh, trust the judgment of Jesus. It's a judgment that ex- both exposes and purifies all human motives. When I'm trying to figure out why I'm doing something, or why I'm making a decision I'm trying to make, and when I think about that horizontally, like I'm only thinking about, well, what does this, what does this person think about this, or how's it going to affect these people? If I only think that way, man, I'm all mixed up. And my motives sometimes probably are mixed up. But when I say, God, what would you have me do? And I'm willing to surrender to what God says. And I'm willing to, to, to listen to godly counsel. And I'm willing to do whatever it is that God calls me to do. Guess what? I can trust the judgment to him. This is humility. This is what brings unity. Sometimes there are, there are some of you who, who we've you know, encouraged to... to you know, to, to move in a certain direction or to, to, to take on certain responsibilities or to, to turn from certain things or to begin certain habits. These are things that we've tried to exhort you in a certain direction. And sometimes you take our advice and sometimes you don't. And it's tough because sometimes I think, gosh, this is not a good idea. They really should do what we're saying. And sometimes it turns out we were right. We should have done what we said. Sometimes it turns out we weren't right. And this is why we always have to leave the judgment with God. All right, God, you're the one who is the final judge. Jesus, you are the final judge. This is also why, listen, listen, we don't have to fear man. Jesus says this in in Matthew chapter 10. He says, so fear, have no fear of persecutors, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Be concerned about Jesus' opinion. What does he think about these things? This is humility. Now, again, continuing on with what's happening in Corinth, these guys are really puffed up about their own opinion. Look what happens in verse 6, what Paul says in verse 6. Paul says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of another. Now, now, what's Paul talking about? He's talking about that all these things he's talked about from sort of midway point of, of, of chapter 1 all the way through this point so far and dealing with this issue of disunity in the church, all that Paul's talked about, he's talked about using himself and Apollos, putting them in the foreground. He, he's saying, listen, I'm applying this to us. That I'm not just telling you what to, what to do, but I'm applying this to us so you know what needs to happen. Now, it's interesting. This, this phrase that he uses in verse 6, that you not, that you learn uh, by us not to go beyond what is written. There's some debate about this. And without getting into all the details of that debate, it seems to me the thing that's clearest here, he's talking at least about the things that they've written about in the past 
what Paul's written about or whatever else, they, other kind of writings they've had from apostles that were taking the Old Testament scriptures and saying, here's how these things point to Jesus and tell us why we can trust Jesus. And it at least seems to be that. So there's this idea that Paul's saying, don't think beyond what's already been written. In other words, don't think beyond the scriptures. Be, be clear about what the scripture says. Because here's what's happening here. You have Paul who brings the gospel first to Corinth, right? We'll talk more about that towards the end. And then later on you have, it seems like you have Apollos. And then Paul was the, the one who's laying this foundation. It's Christ. Again, Roy talked about that in, <coughs> in chapter 3. He's laying down that, that foundation. Then you got Apollos. He's just this really smooth orator. He's the Thomas of the bunch. <coughs> I mean, he just speaks so well. And people are going, that's the guy then. Yeah, Paul had a few good things to say, but he was kind of annoying to listen to. But that dude was smooth. And they're pitting Paul's teaching with Apollos' teaching. And there might even be an indication here that they're, they're comparing both of those guys, who are probably on the same page theologically, to, to Peter, who they thought maybe was teaching something a little bit different. And it's interesting because, you know, this happens all the time, especially with, with, with scholars. If you guys ever read any kind of uh, scholarly Bible commentaries, which I know everyone does on their spare time, but if you ever read these kinds of things, you'll see sometimes they, they, they just kind of, they think about so many things. You're going, what are you talking about? Why do you, what does it even matter? And so often they're comparing, the, say, the theology of Paul with the theology of John, or the theology of John with the theology of Peter. Now there's a place for that because they're bringing in different insights. But sometimes they're always saying, how do these things contradict? They don't contradict. They're talking about the same Jesus and the same gospel. And there's no need for us to puff up one above the other. Well, I really like Paul's theology personally. Well, I like Peter. Peter was down the earth. I like Peter's theology. No, no, John, he was into that weird esoteric stuff in Revelation. That's the kind of theology I like. But that's what this is Paul saying against. He's saying, don't do this. Don't exalt one apostle above the other. See, humility glories in the truth that's about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. He's not the least common denominator. He's the strongest common denominator. It's him that we're looking for. In fact, it, one of the things that seems to be happening here that Paul pulls out, and we'll see this especially when he begins to really deal with their bad behavior and their bad attitudes in chapter 5 and chapter 6, is that they're, 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 they're exalting their private interpretations of what Paul or Apollos or, or Peter said above what they actually said. Now, this is, again, a common thing. It's something that we need to be honest about, that we're tempted to do the same in the same way. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Does that make you feel good? Yeah, you read the Bible and you go, I don't really get this. That's common experience. He says, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destructions as they do the other scriptures. This is a, a perennial problem that happens over and over again. But also listen to what Peter says, or I'm sorry, what Paul says. Paul says this in Romans chapter 15. He says, For whatever was written, <clears throat> excuse me, in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. When we read the scriptures, as the book that tells us about the Lord we trust, you know what ends up happening? We trust and glory in that Lord more. That's humility. 
Lord, my opinion, I might not have to, I don't mind understand everything. I don't get this. I don't understand why these guys see church leaders do this. I don't have to understand anything. But I can know, Jesus, you are Lord, and you're worthy to be followed and trusted. But, but, but Paul keeps going in verse 7. What does he say? Paul says, for who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you've already, or if you did, as if you did not receive it? Now, what, what Paul's talking about here is the fact that, that these guys, again, were ex- wanting to exalt one person's gifts above another person's gifts. And they're not recognizing that the gifts that people have. In other words, the gifts that you receive, when you receive something good from a good Christian book, or from a sermon, or from a good conversation with another believer, those good things that you receive, those are gifts from God. Okay? It's not because you're clever and you have some hidden knowledge and you figured it out. But also, on the flip side, if you're the one who's giving that, you're the giver in that conversation, you're the explainer of truth, or you're demonstrating something to somebody about who Jesus is, and it's blessing people, and you know it's blessing people, your ability to do that is also a gift. And we're going to see this as we continue on in 1 Corinthians, but the word for gift is, is the word, often is the word charismata. And charis, that little part, first part of that, is the word grace. In other words, the things, their abilities that we have, or the things that we receive from others' abilities, both those things are God's grace to us. And so what's happening here, really, is that Paul's kind of exposing the fact that they're not grateful for the graces that God's given them. Well, some are grateful for Paul, but others are really only grateful for Apollos. Others are really grateful for, for Cephas. Others are only grateful for what they've heard in their quiet time from Jesus himself. And they're not grateful that all these things are God's graces. See, the humility that the apostles demonstrated was one that gloried in the truth. Paul didn't feel threatened by Apollos. Paul couldn't feel threatened by Peter. Peter didn't feel threatened by Paul. All of them were submitted to who Christ is and to make Christ known. That's humility. It's not being ungrateful for God's graces to his church. Verse 8, the same thing. Already, Paul says, and this is where he's going to begin to use a little bit of irony here. Paul's using irony or sarcasm. He says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would you di- and we would that you did reign, so then we might share the rule with you. Now, what's happening here? Paul is using irony to kind of say that, listen... You guys are acting as if you're already arrived in the kingdom. The kingdom's already here in its entirety. Now, now we've got to get a little theological so you guys can follow me on this. Okay, follow me with this, all right? When the Bible talks about the kingdom, the, the, the reality of, of God reigning, heaven and earth coming together and God reigning, that's the picture we have throughout Scripture of the kingdom, okay? The kingdom comes with the king. So when Jesus came, the kingdom did begin, right? In the sense that, He is reigning in our hearts, in his church. He's still sovereign over all things. God's sovereign over all things. But the heaven and earth has not come together. So we are in this place where we're already in the kingdom. But because Christ hasn't come back, we're not yet in the kingdom. You guys follow me? You've heard this before, right? All right. The Corinthians were acting like, we're already there. We're already in the kingdom. We've already arrived. We're the spiritual ones. Have you not heard us speak in tongues? Have you not heard the eloquent prophecies that come from our mouth? Have you not seen the miracles that happen in our church? 
And all those things are good things. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 12. But the point is, this mindset that says you've already arrived, Paul's dealing with that. In fact, Paul's saying, in a sense, what Paul's exposing to them is, listen, you guys are in the same danger that Jesus said the church of Laodicea was in. You guys remember that church in, in Revelation chapter 3? What does Jesus say? He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is the Corinthians problem. They were so puffed up over certain celebrity pastors they liked. Or they were so puffed up over what they saw God doing in their lives and how that, that meant somehow they've arrived and others have not. They were so puffed up wanting to have praise from men that Paul's going to say, man, you are just being ridiculous right now. He has to use irony to get their attention. Now, what they really need to do is be willing to press towards real maturity like Paul talks about. Remember in Philippians 3, after Paul kind of, in Philippians 2, saying that, hu that humility is the mark of maturity, here's what he says in Philippians 3. Listen, not that I've already obtained or am already perfected, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Man, if the Apostle Paul says, man, I have to press towards maturity, I'm not there yet. Any of you guys want to be arrogant enough to say that you are? We all got a long ways to go, don't we? I don't know if you've noticed this, too. If you noticed, too, that I've definitely noticed this, that, that some of you are way more mature than I am in certain areas. You're all going, yeah, amen, we're a lot mature more than you are, John. <laughs> and other, user, other of you are less mature. Have you noticed that? You have... We have, as we know our brothers and sisters well, we recognize, man, that person's really grown in this area, and I can learn from them. Here's one of the mistakes we make. We get puffed up in thinking, yeah, but they're so mature, immature in this area, they got nothing to offer me. Well, maybe they're less mature than you in one area, but they're more mature than you in another area, and that can teach you how to press towards maturity. See, humility glories in the truth about Jesus that multifaceted, that, that deep and wide and high truth about who Christ is and his love for us. We grow in that together, and it requires humility that sees that in one another. Lastly, the apostles demonstrate a humility that seeks to love like Jesus. I love their their. Their commitment to this, Paul specifically, his commitment to this is, is a great example. Paul says, as we read in the beginning, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. I skipped some things there. I skipped like several verses. Sorry, let's go back to verse 9. Apologize. I was thinking this is not the right place, and it wasn't the right place. See, John's not so mature when it comes to keeping his place in the story. Verse 9. Paul says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. And here he's using a bit of irony again, verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held 
You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. Now, here's what's going on here. Paul's wanting to be clear that he and the other apostles gained no worldly privilege or prestige for following Jesus. In verse 9, he does this by using an imagery that has to do with uh, kind of a Roman uh, military procession. Like when the Romans conquered a city and they came back to Rome, they would have with them the soldiers marching in rank uh, forward as just showing that they've had this victory. At the very end of the parade would be those prisoners of war. At the end would be those who, who were captured and now had been forced into Roman slavery. Paul's saying this is how people look at us. You guys are slaves, not to Caesar, but to Jesus. And the world saw that as a, as a bad thing. And Paul's saying they can see us that way, but we don't see it as a bad thing. But what he says in verse 10 is he's, he's, he's contrasting he, he and the other apostles' experience. He's contrasting with the expectations that the Corinthians had. The Corinthians were beginning to have this expectation that, look, if we're Jesus followers, if we claim to trust Jesus, guess what? That means we're going to suffer less and less and less and less. Where is that written? Nowhere. But that's preached all over the place, isn't it? That is not the expectation. And what Paul's trying to say is, listen, if we're going to learn to love like Jesus, guess what? That means we're going to have to expect we're going to probably suffer like Jesus. Because we're going to love people who don't love us back. And we're going to try, uh, we're going to, we're going to try to love and we're going to fail. And we're going to need to go back to the sufferings of Christ and remember that we're forgiven. We're going to need to do this. We're going to need to recognize, listen, when things go pear-shaped for us, that that does not mean that we're not loved by Jesus. It means we're having a chance to love like Jesus because Jesus loved when he was being treated badly. We just, I know we just got past Good Friday and then Easter and maybe it might seem like an odd time to go back and do this, but this would be a really good exercise. Go back and meditate, think about the crucifixion, the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Go back and think about that. And you see what Jesus says in, in, in the midst of his worst suffering. Because the apostles are saying, listen, we're following him. And this is what we experience. But then in verse 11, what does he say? In verse 11, he writes, To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Again, Paul's saying, this is what we experience. This is what people think about us. This is what people think about us. He's kind of bringing up two issues. One, he's bringing up this issue of economic hardship, that they suffer because they're being faithful to the gospel. We'll unpack that later when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Because Paul really gets into that issue of suffering for the gospel versus getting paid for the gospel and how that works together. But also he's talking about, in, in the last part of verse 12 and in verse 13, what we might call reputational hardship. Now, I got saved. I, I was converted, came to Christ in 1987. Some of you guys weren't even born. I know I'm old. In 1987... 
And when I became, out of a completely unchurched background, and when I became a Christian, people patted me on the back for it. Non-Christians thought, well done, young man. You're trying to straighten up your life. Well done. I suspect that doesn't happen so much anymore. I suspect now, if any of you were going to come to Christ now, today, that you'd be thinking about my coworkers or my fellow students or my family are going to think I'm absolutely nuts. They're going to think I'm nuts. And not even nuts. Nowadays, it's not even that you're a bit strange or kooky. Now it's like you're a bit dangerous. You believe things that are odd and not helpful. Now, the, the apostles here, they, 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 here's what they're willing to do. In, in wanting to seek, like, seek to love like Jesus, they're willing to endure, endure hardship for the gospel's sake. This is why they're doing it. Because in the same way that Jesus would hang on the cross and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Or say to a, 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 a common thief who was crucified next to him, who had initially blasted him, to say later on to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. To have that kind of mindset that is willing to say, I'm in my worst suffering, I'm going to love the people right in front of me. Paul's saying this is what we're trying to do. This is what we're seeking to do. This is what humility does. This is what unity requires. And then lastly, now where we're supposed to be, verse 14. Paul says again, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my dearly beloved children. See, Paul and the apostles, especially Paul in this context, demonstrated to the Corinthians a fatherly See, what Paul's saying in verse 14 is not a guilt trip. Okay, treat me bad, that's fine. After all I've done for you. Our parents can do that to us, or we can do that as parents. But that's not what Jesus is doing. That's not what Paul's doing for sure. What Paul's doing here is saying, listen, I'm just, I'm warning you as a parent warns the child. I'm warning you of the consequences of when you begin to go down this road that you think, no, I've already arrived. Or no, I know better than someone else. Or no, I, I think this apostle is better than that apostle. And you begin to be puffed up. And you don't <laughs> see who you are in Christ and who you in, in, in the family that Christ has brought you into. When you're puffed up about that and disunity happens, you need to know the damage it's done. You need to know how the gospel, the gospel witness there is lost. In verse 15, he says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I have begotten, or I have became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now Paul's not saying they should call him father. That's not the title that he's asking to have. What Paul's saying is, listen, he was the first one to bring the gospel to them. And he wants to see them grow in that gospel he brought to them. It's a reminder, it's not manipulation. And he says, to all this, to all that we read so far in chapter 4, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. In other words, Paul says, listen, here's how we're going to deal with the, the disunity that's in your midst. Here's how you guys are going to move towards unity, to be one, to grow as one church. Here's how you humble yourself and see yourself as a, stewardship, uh, as a steward of the gospel. You humble yourself and you trust that Jesus is the one who judges. So when you don't agree on something, or you're not sure what, where something should lie, you're not sure what you should do next, you trust Jesus, you judge me. I want to do what you want me to do. You're the judge. 
I trust when you say I'm rendered innocent because of your death, and I trust, Lord, that, that what you want is best. You humble yourself, and you long to know about Jesus, and you learn from one another, not thinking more or, or higher above what's been written. And you humble yourself, and you seek to love like Jesus. You know, if I was Paul, I probably would have come down with a hammer. But Paul's more like Jesus than I am. You see, because this, this, this humility, a humility that is a steward of God's message of good news, this humility that says, here's how judgment comes and is just and good, this humility that glories in truth, this humility that seeks to love is the humility of Jesus. This is what Jesus did for us first. He didn't say, humble yourself, and I'll sit here on my throne and look down on you. He came off his throne, and he died for us. He lived a perfect life. He always walked in perfect love. And he died a substitutionary death for us. And he rose again could become humble, that we could be one. Amen? Father, I pray that you would help us to grow in this. Oh, Lord, we, we don't want to be puffed up against the Corinthians and act like, oh, we're, we, we wouldn't do such things. Lord, we do it in our hearts. And so Lord, we want to confess right now where we've exalted our theology over your word. We want to confess right now where we've exalted in our minds one preacher over another. We want to confess right now, Lord, how we just don't seek to love, especially when people treat us bad, especially when those people are believers. We just don't seek to love like you did, Lord Jesus. We just want to confess all that and say we're sorry. Forgive us. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be those that actually do what your word says, Lord. That we would walk in this. That we'd humble ourselves the way you did, Jesus, and we'd esteem the needs of others as more important than our own. Help us to do that today. Lord, help us to do that this week by arranging our schedules to make home groups a priority. Help us to do that this week so that when our, our, our kids have needs and we're just so exhausted from the day, we still meet those needs. Help us to have your joy and your power to do that. Help us, Lord, when we, we just can't seem to, to come to terms about this issue between husband and wife. Lord, help us to be humble enough to say, Lord, you, you show us. Maybe we're both wrong. Oh, Lord, do what needs to be done to make us humble. We're humbling ourselves right now, Lord, and we're saying we need you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Hope to see you next week. Don't forget to go to a home group.